Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every once in a while, a book comes along that alters the discourse. Its voice so true, so clear, so undeniable. Solito by Javier Zamora is just such a book. I dare anyone to read its 381 pages and not be moved to outrage. Outrage at just how wrong it is that Javier had to endure what he had to, knowing that his journey is a journey that continues to be taken today by countless others. Solito is also a work of literary wonder. And it's why writers as diverse as Sandra Cisneros, Dave Eggers, and Francisco Goldman have sung its praises. I agree with all of them, and with Emma Straub when she writes, Solito is a stone-cold masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. I know I use that word twice. That's how you know I mean it. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Javier Zamora as my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. So I just wanted to start by just congratulating you on Pub Week. You know, the book just yeah. came out on Tuesday. Uh, the nice news is we had a lot of pre-orders for it. So it's already been selling. And I'm just, you know, just wondering as uh, someone who's had, this is sort of, their their first non poetry book. What's it been like for you on Pub Week? Uh, it's been a trip <laughs> in and of itself. It's been unexpected. I think the contrast from the release of my poetry book, it was it wasn't like this, and and it feels like night and day, um, and it's overwhelming in the best way possible. And it's been received well. It's only the, the second day that it's been out. Um, and it's just exciting. And readers are talking about it. Everyone from Ruma Malam, Dave Eggers, Carolyn Forche, you know, the whole literary community has rallied around this book. And one of the things that really resonated for me was a quote by Sandra Cisneros, who I idolize and think she's kind of a remarkable, remarkable uh, person, as well as someone who, you know, lifts up writers of, of from everywhere. And but she she said something really interesting in in what she wrote about this book, and she said, "This is the mythic journey of our era. 
I have waited decades for a memoir like Solito. Why do you think she would have said that? Wow. And uh, I, I think her blurb was one of the first, if not the first. And just imagine getting an email with a blurb like that. Um, I was floored. I cried. Um, she has been an inspiration. Um, I, her book, Pals of Mango Street, was the first book that I read that I loved. And I think she's talking about a moment replicating a, a similar moment that I had when I first read her work. You know, her, her book has, is still one of the best books out there. Um, and it seemed, even though I was 11 when I read her first read her book, I had waited decades to read something like, like her, what she put out into the world, which is something very personal, something that she knew, something very Chicago, very place based. And yet we can all see little pieces of us in her work. And I think she's talking about that, uh, except the place has changed from Chicago to El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico. The speaker's still a kid and the kid is an immigrant. And I think immigrants, myself included, we've been wanting to be represented on the pages. And as a Salvadoran, I've been waiting for a book that unapologetically uses Salvadoran slang, which we call it caliche. And, you know, I just insert it in there. And if you know, you know, um, hopefully it doesn't deter you from, from, from reading further. Um, but just feeling seen, you know? Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, that um, the Toni Morrison quote that I think you've quoted. You know, if the book you want to read hasn't been written, you must write it, right? And I think she's speaking to that as well. It's a book that's going to, you know, it made me cry, it made me laugh at times. The slang, I love the slang. You know, I was living inch by inch as you lived inch by inch and as a writer to be able to do that it's kind of remarkable living inside your skin as a nine-year-old leaving el salvador at a time that i was very um you know i was very aware because i'm older i was very aware of just what this country was doing in el salvador which was making people leave it was a horrific time, and, and many people have forgotten that period of time. Let's talk a little bit about the El Salvador you do remember as a nine-year-old and before. Mm. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, in the poetry, in my first book, I wrote it when I was an undocumented immigrant, meaning that I couldn't leave this country. And I remembered what I thought was a country, but in reality, it's an idyllic childhood that I think in any time frame, in any place, it would be magical. And it seems like it doesn't exist anymore. And my childhood in El Salvador, I grew up in a rural place and because of, such place, I had access to coral snakes. 
I had access to anteaters. I had access to um, parakeets of all kinds, bats. Uh, I had pet uh, parakeets, I had a pet cat, pet dogs, fish. My whole world was filled to the extreme. And that's only the animals. Then I had five different types of mangoes in my backyard that I could just go and climb a backyard tree and take a fruit and eat it. Um, and that is the world that I knew. And that is the world that I grew up with. Um, but I was, grandma, I was struck also by the, when you talk about you as a kid, your interest in popular culture was really, mm -hmm. really strong. You know, you talk about, um, talk a little bit about that. I mean, all of the, all of the, the popular cultural heroes that you had at the time. So that is the, the outside of my home. Inside the home, by now, my mom and dad have left. And because they left, we can afford a color TV. And in the TV, it's mostly American shows. And... My parents also begin to send me movies. I watch Aladdin, I watch The Lion King. I'm a huge fan of Full House and Baywatch. Um, and so to me, that world was the world that had taken my parents away. And therefore, because they had taken my parents away, it must be the best world out there as a little kid. And so I idolized you know, um, Full House, Friends, Baywatch, um, and to me, as a little kid, all those lo localities, which are in different states, were all next to each other. So when I was gonna come to San Francisco, there was gonna be snow on the beaches, because <laughs> of course. Um, and so I was really looking forward to coming here and enter this magical world of the television. And, and you had, you know, while you were, you know, while your, your parents were gone, the thing that struck me too was the incredible extended family you had, your, your, your grandfather, um, you know, your aunt, you know, all of that, everyone living there, you had such a richness and you, you, you seemed so loved as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I felt as any kid feels the absence of it's mom, but I had wonderful, um, almost replacement moms with my aunt and my grandma. And this is, I think, and now I just, me and my therapist and I, you know, I couldn't have written this book without therapy as well. We just made almost this connection that, and you see this in the book, is that this kid learns to project a mom onto the people around him. Not with Patricia, but I learned to practice that with Mali, who is my aunt, and who uh, I focus in the first chapter with my aunt and my grandma. This kid learns to find the moms in these strangers. You know, They happen to be my family. But then that skill grows. And then I attach to Patricia and her daughter, yeah. Carla. Yeah. Talk about your parents a little bit. Uh, why did your dad have to leave and he left when you were one and then and then your mom followed? You know, and as a kid, you don't know. 
So all, all you know is what the adults reveal to you. And, but in reality, as an adult, um, this was the question that haunted me. I, being in the United States, I needed this question answered. Why are we here? You know, why the United States of all places? Um, and I kept coming back to the Civil War. And my parents grew up during the Civil War from 1980 till 1992. My dad fled in 1991 um, when I was about to turn one. And then the aftermath was horrific. Um, and my mom was trying to get a job and she couldn't find a job. Um, she was getting harassed. Then it wasn't, it was the beginning of gang members coming into town as well. And so it was, it's always been dangerous to the adults. And so she also fled and, and came here by then. And so if there's one event that caused both of their departures would it be the civil war. But as a little kid, I didn't know what war was, you know, I hadn't lived it. Um, I was born during it, but uh, at one and two, I didn't remember anything. Right, there was the talk of the trip. And that had such an impact on you because of all the things you just spoke about, the idea of mm -hmm. idealizing what it would be like to be in the United States. But it seems to me that the trip also represented being back with your parents, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a kid, I, I attached the US, the US meant parents. Um, getting back with my parents always meant coming to this country. You couldn't have one without the other. And it's the thing that I wish for every single day. You know, if, if a Katie did, you know, in, in my culture, Esperanzas, if they land on you, that's good luck. If one landed on me, I wish to come to the United States. If I saw a shooting star, I wish to come to the United States. If, if plates broke, I wish to come to the United States. If, you know, during my birthday, when I um, put the candles out, same thing. Um, since the moment that, that my mom left, I didn't remember my dad leaving. Um, I didn't remember my dad at all. To me, he was only a voice through the bi-weekly uh, phone call. But I remembered my mom and I really wanted to be back with her. And it didn't matter how I was gonna get here, I wanted to get here, here meaning the United States. The thing that was so interesting to me in in reading about you and reading the book. And, and as I said to you earlier, I not only read the book, but I listened to the book. So I felt like you were whispering in my ear. And, it, and for those of you who don't know, the audio book is read by Javier himself and he reads it beautifully. And, and that's where I love the slang. And that's where I love, even you had, you did something and, and your, 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 your sensitivity to language. When you talk about being on, I think it was being on the boat, where you try, you approximated the sound of the engines on the yeah. boat. I mean, and the way you read that, it was, it was poetic. It was as if you were, you know, basically writing a poem. After you basically, and this is not a spoiler alert, really, because Javier is here, but after you <laughs> reunited with your parents, um, you didn't really talk to them much about all of this, about what you went through. So talk a little bit about what unlocked uh, what unlocked it for you to be able to write this and to talk about the trip 
and to talk about the impact that it had on you. Because after all, you were away, I believe, for seven weeks, right? On a trip yeah. that was not supposed to have taken seven weeks. Yeah, it was nine. It was nine weeks, was nine but, for weeks. Seven, but for seven weeks, my parents don't hear from me. Um, and so the coyote, and my grandpa is with me for the first two weeks. And then my, my grandpa leaves. And then a week after the coyote leaves us stranded and we stop um, communication with our family members. And, and the we is the group of six um, individuals that are with me. It's myself, a nine-year-old, a 12-year-old uh, by the name of Carla and her mom, Patricia, and Chino, who must be like 20, Marcelo, who must be like 30, uh, 28, and Chele, who's like 32. And we're left um, on this boat. And from then on, we don't communicate. And I can't imagine the anguish that my parents felt. And I think because of the trauma as a parent, I'm not a parent myself, but I can only imagine the trauma that that absence caused them. And then the trauma that I lived that the reader um, uh, accompanies me through I can't as a kid I can't describe it to them but how I describe it to them when I get here because they ask questions you know where were you what happened they break down and that that was the first conversation that we had about the trip where I think we covered most of the things because they were fresh on in my mind and in their minds as well and so I get here I'm nine years old come Thanksgiving and this is reminding me because you're in Miami we hear of Elian Gonzalez so there is this other eight-year-old kid that I think starts the conversation in this country around immigration and child migration so here's a very outwardly all the newscasts are focusing on this kid as I myself, I'm a kid who just survived. I didn't survive the ocean um, like he did. I was also in the ocean, different ocean, but I survived the desert. And in this conversation, he teaches my parents and he teaches me that I must stay quiet, that I can't tell anybody about what just occurred. And that's when I'm nine, I turned 10. By the point, by the time that I'm 11, I'm completely assimilated. I start telling people that I was born in this country. I pretend that I don't speak Spanish. Um, I make it to high school. I internalize everything. It's very hard um, to keep lying to people that I'm a citizen and that I didn't go through this very traumatic thing. Um, and then I get to 17 when poetry and this teacher just asked us to write about where you're from. Where do you call home? And by that time, it's just 2007. In 2006, there were these huge protests. Um, millions of immigrants are protesting on the street. And it's the beginning of the DREAM Act in Congress in 2006. And there's this moment when immigrants think that we're gonna finally get a path to citizenship. And we all begin to talk about undocumented people begin to quote unquote, come out of the shadows. And I think that was in the air 
and then I have a pen and paper and somebody's asking me to tell them about my home. And my thought goes to El Salvador. And it is the first time that I begin to unpack what I have hidden for close to nine years. And from the age of 17 to 27, when my book of poems comes out, I've asked my parents why they're here. I learned stories from the war that I didn't know. And I began to tap into the people that I was with. And in my poetry book, Chino is the only person that I talk about, that I allow myself to talk about. And that's only one page. And so from the ages of 27 till 29, when I begin to write this book, I realize that I'm, I'm still hiding. I'm going out on tours and, and talking about unaccompanied and I'm only talking about Chino and I'm pretending that it was only me and him. And that that is the only thing that I remember when I actually remember a lot more and I dive in and that's how you get, um, I get to retell my story to myself because I had to and I needed to in order to heal. And, and you mentioned the importance of therapy. Talk a little bit mm -hmm. about that too. When the book, my unaccompanied came out 27, I truly thought that be, here I am, a 27-year-old writing about something traumatic and therefore I'm making art about it. And because I'm making art of it, uh, from it, I must be healed. Um, I truly, I think I truly believe that that all I needed was to write this out of me. And it turns out that when I would be go out on the road, um, kind of like a book tour, I would feel very lonely. And now I can tell you, and that's another insight that I've been with this therapist for like three years and we still make these connections that are like, oh, wow, of course. Um, being on the road alone, um, retelling this trauma was traumatic in and of itself. I was replicating the nine weeks that I had gone through and that, hadn't, that I hadn't processed. And so it was taking a mental, a physical, spiritual toll on me. And finally, I realized that I needed to go back to therapy. And therapy is not something that I just tried once. I've been in therapy since I was in seventh grade because I was a, a, bad, a bad kid, um, meaning bad, meaning that I would act out. Um, but I was a quote unquote good student, academically, straight A's, behaviorally, terrible. So teachers didn't know like what is going on with this kid. Like he's smart, but he chooses to engage in bad activity. Um, and so since seventh grade, I've done things that either the school or the state has made me get therapy. Um, but I get to 29 and, and throughout my years, I never worked with a therapist that was an immigrant herself. And that has made a huge difference. My therapist is a therapist who was born in the Dominican Republic and she immigrated here as a little kid. And once she told me that, I knew that I could trust her and I knew that she could hold my trauma. And she's a specialist on child trauma. Mm. Um, and working with her 
and then meeting my wife a year later in 2020, who is a Reiki specialist, a practitioner. Um, Reiki is kind of like acupuncture without needles and it cleanses your, your spirit. Um, both of those things and me truly wanting to heal actively. I was meditating, I was working out, I was doing yoga, trying everything to really cleanse myself of this trauma that a metaphor that I like to use is like a backpack. A backpack that I put on on April 6, 1999, when I left El Salvador and that I had never taken off and it was weighing me down. And the writing of this book, now I feel lighter and my spirit, my body, everything feels lighter. To build on, on that a little bit, I mean, it's, it's so clear that anyone who knew you really knew you because of the contrast with the way you were as a person in El Salvador, because nobody at all would ever call you a troublemaker, right? In El Salvador, you were always wanting to do the right thing to the point where you were the valedictorian in every class that you were in. And then for things to change so dramatically when you got here, anybody would understand <laughs> that there was something very traumatic to make that personality change uh, so clear. So it really, it really makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of, because that's not something you necessarily go into in the rest of the book. So that's something that, you know, in reading about you is something that I discovered a little bit more about, that this trauma was able to be lifted with the writing of the book as well. Let us talk a little bit about that second family, that weeks-long family that went through this with you, and you paint such a picture, you, you know, the arc of the, of the group that you were with, focusing particularly on Chino, Patricia, and Carla. I mean, as you say, you projected a family onto them during this period, the challenge of that, of what exactly happened when you were on that trip. So I'm on, my grandpa leaves and he thinks that this coyote by the name of Tontago, the same coyote that brought my mom here is gonna be with me every single day. Like he was with my mom. So we, we knew that he could, if he wanted to be with the person that you pay him to, to safe keep you know, every single day. And with my mom, my mom immigrated here in 1995. She made it here in two weeks and Dondago was with her every single step of the way and protected her. So that's the service that we had paid for, but he leaves. And it's a group of six of us who I call the six. And out of the six, I don't know anybody. Um, and I'm this little boy who I had trouble tying my shoes. I had trouble, um, I wasn't fully potty trained. Um, and I was afraid of the dark and I, was, I couldn't swim. And I was just, I guess my brain chose not to freeze, but it chose to attach and attach himself to the one woman um, that could act like a mom. And we would sleep in the same room. Um, at the beginning, and I got to know and see the relationship 
that she had with her daughter. And then we were on the boat. On the boat, this is week three into the trip. Before then, I was afraid of the man because the man, you know, would drink almost every single day. They would get drunk. They're constantly smoking. Um, and I grew up in a household with an alcoholic grandpa who stops drinking when I turned five. So for four years, I haven't seen somebody drinking or smoking and I'm just afraid of them. But on the boat, it is Chino who keeps me warm because the ocean is cold at night. And from then on, I begin to trust them little by little. Since I've been sleeping in the same room with Patricia and Carla, I begin to trust them little by little. And, and I like to mention that this is a choice that the adults around me made, Patricia and Chino. They chose to take care of me. They didn't have to. Um, in a lot of ways, they complicated their own migration by taking care of this nine-year-old kid. But they chose to keep me alive. And from week three until week nine, by the end of the book, I'm, I'm crying. I'm crying when I say goodbye to them because they have become family. And I owe them my life. And the thing that haunts me, and I think it's another reason why I wrote this book, I don't remember telling them thank you. Um, even, you know, I was half asleep when they said goodbye to me once we make it to Tucson. And in this book, I dedicate this book to them. And it's my way now as a 32-year-old man to, to, to say thank you. Is there a hope that you'll be able to reconnect with him through this book somehow? I'll be the cherry on top. You know, I don't expect to. Um, I absolutely do not expect to. What I do hope, and I think it's more realistic, is that they find themselves in a bookstore or a library, or even, you know, it's, it's still absurd to me that my book is it's available at Target. <laughs> you know, um, Latinos, we love Target. So I think most likely it might happen at Target um, that they see this book and they open it and the very first page, they see their names. And that's all, they don't have to, they know what happens inside the pages. They know this story by heart. Um, so all I want to them is to read that dedication page. And that would mean everything to me. Um, because, you know, realistically speaking, their life in this country has definitely not been like my life in this country. It has probably been harder and very normal um, to, and compared to other immigrants who are in this country as well. What I kept thinking about as I read your book and why I think it's so important just in terms of the general discussion that has gone on over the last 10 years about immigration is so many people have forgotten, you know, that we in this country had so much to do with people wanting to leave their own countries because of the political situations that we created, which caused this kind of a flight. And unfortunately, there are so many in this country that want to use immigration as a political football. And uh, 
And what is the beauty of your book is that the the empathetic nature of learning your story or the story your story generating empathy is the kind of thing that we all have to tap into because a world without empathy is not a world I want to be in. And, you know, we also have to call out the history of things. We don't know enough about history right now in our state and around the country, they're trying to shut down history, but the history of America's involvement in El Salvador is, is despicable. And uh, I know that, you know, you studied history as well. And why don't you speak to that a little bit for people who don't really know what the situation was like in El Salvador, which caused the kind of uh, fleeing that occurred? You know, I'll, I'll answer that as another way to explain why I wrote the book in the way that I did. We in the United States, even the people who denied the history that I'm about, to, I'm about to speak on, we know the statistics. We know what happened. And I see that that hasn't worked. We see the images, the photographs, there are documentaries, there are movies about immigrants. And that's, that hasn't worked. The shock value seems to be gone around immigration. Um, and it's the reason why I, I chose to tell it from the little, from my nine-year-old self, because I think it's harder to ignore a kid, an eloquent kid, um, and it, as children are. You know, as adults, we forget that children are smart. Um, and I say that because I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that I went to college and I wanted to be a historian, an American historian, and a historian that focused on the Salvadoran history, um, specifically the Salvadoran War. Because I kept on asking this question, why are we here? And the answer was the war. Okay, what about the war? And, and the two facts that really captured me was one, the fact that before 1980, when war breaks out, there were less than 60,000 Salvadorans in this country, and they all had work permits. It was mostly in the textile uh, industry, in the, and it was mostly Salvadoran women who would come as guest workers to El Salvador, work, and then go back to El Salvador. And then war breaks out. And by 1992, one out of five Salvadorans has fled. And the population of El Salvador was 5 million. So that's close to a million people that have fled. Um, figures disagree. Uh, it could be as little as 80,000 people, as high as 120,000 people are killed. Um, and this is all in a, in a country the size of Mar um, Massachusetts and with a population smaller than New York City. Um, and so we make it here. And once you make it here, because this is Cold War era and because the United States was funding the war, at one point, the United States sent more money to El Salvador 
on a daily basis than any other country at that time. We surpassed Israel. Um, and I want to say it was like $3 million a day of state um, um, tax money that gets sent to El Salvador. And so if you were a refugee, which you were, all of, I want to say all of those million people in my book are refugees. Out of all those people, less than 2% received refugee status. So you're not only asking people to flee, but then once they come here and ask for refugee status, you're like, no, you don't qualify, so you're undocumented. So these people learn to live an undocumented life in the 90s in the States. And another, and now if we're talking about what the involvement truly meant in my country. So you're talking about a country that since its inception in 1821, when it became a country, it has been run by the military and by the rich. And so what the Civil War was asking was simple. They were asking for people to get education. At the time, illiteracy rate was at like 70%. So 70% of Salvadorans didn't know how to read and write. So they were asking for that. They were asking for equality, gender equality. Um, a lot of the, the lieutenants and, and generals in, in the leftist movement were women. And so we had in 1983, this group of dreamers, Salvadoran men and women who were thinking of a better world. And by 1983, they were winning. They were about to win. And then the US steps in and increases the funding. And then you get more disappearance and more death. So I wonder what would have happened if the left had won? Right now in 2022, El Salvador is one of the worst countries for gender equality. Femicide is one of the highest in the world. Um, gang violence is huge. Um, access to education is still terrible. Right now we're making, we're making news because of Bitcoin. You know, we have failed. Um, the Bitcoin thing was terrible. So I think the Bitcoin is actually gonna cost more immigration. And so these are the literal things, factual things that the United States involvement caused. But we know all that. We all know that, um, but that's not making a difference. Um, so hopefully this little kid might, you know, listening to this little kid might tap into what you've been talking about, the empathy, um, because empathy, it was missing and the human factor is missing from the statistics, from the history, from the images, um, one can only hope. And we hope right along with you. We really, really do. Would you read a little bit of, of the book? Well, um, I'll read from my very last day, minutes in my home in El Salvador. And so I'm getting ready. And this takes place on April 6, 1999. It's dawn. Indigo, like when mom left. Mali kisses me awake and I have to get ready. The roosters crow, la bonita barks, the birds sing, the world is waking up. 
the stars turn off one by one. To shower, I pull water from a well with a bucket. Grandpa already showered. Abuelita drives me off. Mali irons my clothes. The outfit has been picked out. A nice dress shirt, dark blue, dark blue jeans, a black belt, black dress shoes. Next to the hard boiled eggs, avocado, queso duro, and tortillas, a black backpack. Even the brand name has been crossed out. Inside it, a dark t-shirt, black pants, two pairs of underwear, an extra pair of shoes, the plastic toothbrush, a comb, soccer shorts, Colgate toothpaste, a bar of palm olive soap, head and shoulder shampoo, and another dark blue short-sleeved dress shirt. There's a notebook, big pens, pencils, and the assignments my teachers gave me. Everything has to be dark colors, Molly explains. Don Dago's orders. I eat, and Grandpa waits by the door, holding my black backpack and his own regular one. He looks at his watch. Abuelita combs my hair. Mali kneels in front of me to button my shirt. She tucks it in, kisses my forehead. Lupe is here, the earliest I've seen her come visit. She hugs me, kisses me, wishes me luck. Julia is sleeping in Abuelita's bed between two pillows to keep her from falling. Abuelita kisses me, kneels to hug me. Then Mali and Abuelita hug me at the same time. Only now, I cry. This is it. The thing I wanted to happen, but it's happening so fast. Te queremos mucho, Chepito. Te cuidas. Que Dios te bendiga. Here, everywhere, always. We'll be waiting for you. Praying you'll make it there safely, Javiercito. Their voices almost in unison, soft, breaking with every word, tears running down the round faces. I can't stop crying. Then they make the cross over my forehead, over my head, over my entire body, wiping my tears with their hands. Grandpa grabs my arm, walks me past the door. Don't look back, he says but I do. I see Abuelita and Mali in the middle of the door holding each other. Lupe has a hand on each of their shoulders. Come on, Grandpa says, and we walk. Javier, that was beautiful, and I can't thank you enough for being on The Literary Life, and, you know, we are going to do all we can to put uh solito in the hands of as many people as we possibly can so and it'll also be great to meet you in person that yeah that'll be awesome <laughs> book fair i look forward to it and thank you for having me this has been a blast and thank you for your wonderful questions 